0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. In the fight against cancer, one of the most promising treatment advances is harnessing the power of the body's own immune system to fight the cancer. CAR T-cell therapy uses genetically modified versions of a patient's own immune cells to fight their cancer. These engineered cells multiply and act like a living drug that uses the body's own defense system to fight the disease. On today's program, we'll learn about CAR T-cell therapy from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also in the program, we'll learn about treating coronary artery disease and, just as important, tips for prevention, and how to help kids avoid common infections. All that along with this week's Health and Medical News right after this.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
1: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
2: There are four words that no parent or family ever wants to hear. Your child has cancer. Families facing pediatric cancer experience a wide range of feelings. Scared, overwhelmed, frustrated, helpless, even hopeless.
1: And each family member may experience different emotions and at different times, making it difficult to navigate and support each other. While every family's experience with childhood cancer is different, it's definitely a stressful situation for everyone involved. And here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Sarah McCarthy. Welcome to the program and welcome to Mayo Clinic, Dr. McCarthy.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, both right here and in Rochester.
2: Did you work somewhere before you came to Mayo?
3: I did. I actually um, was at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So I did my fellowship there and then spent uh, seven years on
2: faculty there. And what attracted you to Rochester? Uh,
3: Actually, a lot. The first time I came to Mayo, um, I was interviewing for a job that I told them I uh, wasn't going to take, and they encouraged (laughs) me to come down anyway. And I was just so drawn by... Um, the people here and the work that's being done. And so when uh, another position opened up in pediatric psychology, I actually jumped on the opportunity and relocated
2: here. And Dana-Farber, a great place too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely wonderful. I suspect your job can be pretty difficult at times.
3: Yeah, you know, it's so funny. When people ask me what I do and I tell them that I um, work within pediatric oncology, um, they usually look at me like I'm crazy. But um, you know, I have the opportunity every day to work with just absolutely amazing children and parents and siblings, as well as uh, providers, nurses, physicians, uh, child life specialists. And pediatric cancer is difficult, and it there are times that it can be really devastating. But at the heart of it, it's children. And so every day I get to go to work, and I work with children. And children are resilient and positive and absolutely incredible, and that's why I do what I do.
2: But tell us about a typical day.
3: Uh, so there oftentimes is not a typical day. Um, but, um, many days I will see outpatient consults in the morning. And so these are 90 minute, um, slots for, um, children and parents, um, oftentimes dealing with medical illnesses. So not just, uh, oncology, but other illnesses as well. And they're referred to me for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's adjustment to the news of the diagnosis. Um, this is often a time, um, for many illnesses, but especially pediatric cancer where families really struggle. and. Research has shown that this is actually where distress for most families is the highest. That they've heard those words, your child has cancer, and, um, oftentimes they're just absolutely devastated and in shock. And so sometimes they'll meet with me to process, you know, just what this means. Um, I, um, will sometimes, uh, meet with parents to talk with them about how best to tell the child about their cancer, what words to use, um, how to explain treatment to them you know, one thing we know is that it is so important to be honest with children about their diagnosis and about their treatment. And by doing so and explaining it, uh, their their illness to them in a, in a way that's appropriate for their age, um, it actually is very helpful to prepare them for what's coming. And and this can be just a very powerful thing. And so I'll talk with uh, sometimes families about that. Um, I also meet with children and families who are at the other end of the spectrum, so who may be approaching end of life and can help facilitate some of those very difficult conversations about what the child's wishes are, what they understand, and, and supporting the parents and siblings as well.
1: What is the importance or explain to me why you think it's important that a child be part of the decision-making of their treatment, why that is something that is so key? So, you know, I think that it – first of
3: all, it – this is a child's body, and so – What we know is that when children don't have information, they make up things, that that's just how all of our minds work, and and that's especially true with children. And so if we don't tell children what's going on, oftentimes they will think, this is so bad that they're not telling me, and they'll go to a situation which is even worse than what the actual uh, situation is. And so... You know, by giving them information that's appropriate for their age, so how we explain cancer to a five year old is very different than how we would explain it to a 17 year old. But giving them information that's appropriate for their age can actually really reduce anxiety because then they know what's going on. They know why they're coming into the hospital. Even explaining things like uh, port access. So many children with um, cancer have to have some kind of central access, either a port-a-cath or a, a central line, and um, with the so port, so that's
2: a catheter. It's that a goes catheter into their vein. Yeah.
3: Yes. So, it's, um, so many children with cancer have ports, and so these are actually placed underneath their skin. Um, and so when they're not accessed, they can do all the things that kids should be doing, running around, playing, uh, swimming, things like that. And then when they are accessed, they're accessed by uh, cleaning it and putting a needle in. And so simply explaining and showing a child what that's going to look like before it happens can be very empowering to them. We use things like medical play. We have amazing child life specialists who will put ports in stuffed animals, dolls, <laughs> you name it. They've done it. And so we do a lot of preparation with the kids. And that has been shown to actually really decrease their anxiety throughout their treatment.
1: When a child is going to be different from everybody else because they've got this thing going on, they lose their hair, whatever it might be, how do you help a kid get through that part of a yeah. cancer diagnosis? So we talk about it again. That you know, I think that the
3: losing of the hair is something that is, I would say, one of the most difficult things, especially for parents um, and for teenage girls. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, often, you know, the younger kids sometimes aren't as bothered with it. But we definitely prepare them for it, and we give them a lot of choice. I recommend giving them a lot of choice about you know, how this is going to look. And so for some kids, um, they are not at all interested in cutting their hair before, and it's not until their hair is really coming out. And oftentimes it's once it starts getting in their food um, that that's when they want it gone, um, but really not for letting the child choose, you know, when, if and when they want the haircuts. And so then um, also talking to them about it. So if the kids are in school, then talking about, you know, if someone says something to you, what do you think you're going to say? And so we do some role-playing and brainstorming about what they can say. And so then when they go into that situation, they're more
2: prepared. Do you meet with the, with the child and the parents together or sometimes individually or sometimes just the parents and then the kid? It, it's all combinations. So it
3: really depends what the family needs. So initially, um, I often try to meet with everybody together just to get a sense of, you know, who they are as a family um, with the When I meet with the kid, a lot of, I think, my job, especially at the beginning, is really just getting to know them and, and getting to know them beyond. Um, they're a lot more than just that cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, if someone was to sit in on one of my first few sessions, it looks like I'm just talking, and with younger kids we do a lot of playing. But what I'm really doing is starting to establish a relationship with them. And same thing with the parents, that I'm getting to know the parents, getting to know this family. And what that allows me to do is then – If and when my services are needed, when a crisis comes up or an issue comes up, we have a relationship to, to go off of. And so I really, I think that this, um, you know, with children with, um, serious medical illnesses, whether it's cancer or something else, I think it, it really is so important to be able to have that time to get to know the families, um, before crises come up, um, because we're just, I'm able to provide much better services, um, if I know them and when they know me, siblings as well, yes, and I think siblings are often um, a little bit forgotten about um and and that's what they tell us how they feel that um you know when a child is diagnosed with cancer, all attention. Goes to that child and family routines are so disruptive. Um, oftentimes, for children, um, at the at least at the beginning of cancer treatment, there's a, a prolonged hospital stay, and so they might actually be physically separated from um, the child with cancer and their and their parents. And so siblings are at, at definite risk for um, having difficulties. And so not only do I meet with siblings, I also when I when I meet with families initially, I always try to talk about you know prepare parents for what you know, could happen and give them a heads up, but also do some anticipatory guidance around ways to you know help um, facilitate the, the sibling's adjustment, even as we're just getting started with the treatment process.
2: can be very difficult on a marriage, too, can oh, it?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do see higher rates of divorce um, in families who have experienced um, a serious medical illness of their child, and it, it is so extraordinarily stressful. I mean, it really, this is like the, you know, one of the most stressful things of a, a parent will ever have to have to deal with and people handle stress differently and so um, again I think that's an issue that I I try to talk with parents about up front of just you know how do you cope with stress how does their partner cope with stress you know and how can we continue to support each of you and how can you continue to support each other during this because you know one of the things that we know is a child's um, adjustment to their illness is really um, greatly influenced by the parents adjustment and so the more we can do for the parents then we end up helping the child as well
2: All right, we've been talking about the emotional toll childhood cancer has on families with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Sarah McCarthy. Dr. McCarthy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me.
1: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from another member of a pediatric cancer care team.
2: We'll learn about the important role of the child life specialist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic hematologist Dr. Yi Lin. Dr. Lin is chair of the Cellular Therapeutics Cross-Disciplinary Group at Mayo Clinic.
4: This is a lot to cover in a short period of time, but we've got a lot of really fascinating things to do in this world of CAR-T. So we've talked about a bit how this gets done. Um, you know, I think important to patient experience is not just the time it takes to get done, as you were bringing up, but also the recovery. So, what kind of side effects can patients experience once they get to that anticlimactic piece about getting the small bag of T cells?
5: Then a lot of excitement happens. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why CAR T therapy is not yet available just at any local oncology yeah, clinic. Okay. Multidisciplinary specialty care is needed because the fact that these CAR T cells goes back in the patient's body, they can find those tumors and become activated to try to kill the tumor. That same process of them becoming activated will cause the side effects that the patient experience. And what I try to warn people, and you can't quite prepare somebody well enough until they actually go through it, mm-hmm. is now you're going to experience side effects that nothing like the chemotherapy such, so far. Such as? So the two most common ones we tell patients about are cytokine release syndrome and neurologic symptoms. Say that first one again. So cytokine release syndrome, or CRS, is essentially from the fact that when the CAR T cells are trying to kill the tumors, they're going to release all types of chemicals that they normally make inside their cells. They get released into that tumor environment to try to kill the tumor cells. So a lot of these are cytokines or chemokines. And those are the same type of chemicals that cause all the symptoms that you may experience when you have a really bad flu Mm -hmm. or a really bad pneumonia. And so that would start off with fever. And the fever curve can get really high, sure. 40, 41 degrees Celsius for days. And it may not break through with Tylenol anymore at some point. So this is what happens when you really genetically change and soup up you know, your, your T cells to be super active. And what about the neurological ones? With the neurologic symptom that's probably not quite as well understood in terms of why do people get them and who might get the more severe symptoms, we think again, Um, the most common presentation is within the same time frame of when patients experience cytokine release syndrome, and therefore there's probably some relation to that immune activation. So perhaps somewhat similar to a viral meningitis type of picture. And so there the patients may initially um, have some confusion, difficulty finding words. It can progress to the point where they cannot communicate at all. And so when patients go through these symptoms, this is where they may even need ICU level monitoring. They need not only hematologists who's given them this treatment, but good ICU doctors, good neuro, doc, neurologists, cardiologists, infectious disease doctors, multidisciplinary team to support them through. this this time frame.
4: So to that point, that's why you need to be able, that's why that turnaround time is so important. And the ability to be at a center that has a high volume is so critical so that you can, it's like you're taking patients to the brink and then trying to get them well enough again to see the results. That is
5: correct. I mean, this is a treatment that right now is um, being very tightly regulated, right, by the FDA and other organization that tries to uh, monitor outcomes for cellular therapy. As we all learn, how best to support patient through these treatments. Yeah.
1: You mentioned that you turn these CAR T cells into the, the foot soldiers that are all hyped up like superheroes. Do they get tired out and you need to put another batch of them in or is this just a one time thing?
5: Currently we are treating patient with a one time infusion and seeing how well does that work and how long does that work. There is opportunity if the patient had some response up front for a second treatment. But we are right now still trying to learn if this stops working, what the mechanism that it stops working. So is retreatment with CAR-T, again, the right treatment option for them? And how well does it work the second time around? So yes, it is an option. It's not something that's being automatically done. Are we going to be able to use CAR T-cell for more types of cancers, or what's next in research? There's a lot that's going on. Definitely a lot of clinical trials already looking at other types of cancers. So I definitely would encourage if a a patient or their doctors at home has a type of cancer that hasn't responded well to other treatment options to explore what clinical trial testing is available at Mayo Clinic. We think multiple myeloma may very well be the next, Uh, blood cancer that could have an FDA-approved indication if the trial continues to go um, as well as it has. And here at Mayo, we uh, want to be the destination medical center (laughs) for this type of, you know, very complex care that we excel at, where we have a number of different complex medical procedures and treatment where we not only have the best outcome in the the country uh, in terms of responses you know, management of side effects, but also patient satisfaction. And so this is a type of treatment where we want to have that same um, outcome, which we've seen so far coming into clinical practice, uh, which I'm not shy to brag about because it's the work of the entire team to be able to make that happen. But we also have a number of clinical trials, not only partnering with industry, but our in-house technology where we're looking at other types of cancer how to give uh, CAR-T safer, so the next-generation technology where we may not see as much side effects or we have smarter ways to manage the side effects, as well as even potentially using CAR-T beyond cancer treatment.
1: We've been talking about the exciting new cancer treatment option, CAR-T cell therapy, with Dr. Yi Lin, a hematologist and chair of the Cellular Therapeutics Cross-Disciplinary Group at Mayo Clinic Cancer Center. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lin. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
4: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss coronary artery disease with a Mayo Clinic expert.
1: And we'll learn how to help kids avoid those common infections. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News
0: Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. For many people, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a distressing and recurrent illness that affects breathing ability and quality of life. While treatable, COPD remains the third leading cause of death in the U.S. In the latest issue of Mayo Clinic Proceedings, researchers take a closer look at new findings and recommendations from the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease. Among the findings from the 2018 report are the following points: Influenza and pneumococcal vaccinations are recommended for patients with COPD. Treatments have been simplified. Other health conditions, particularly lung Lung cancer, and heart disease play an important role in the health of those with COPD. Thus, prevention and vigilance against these conditions is important. The panel stresses the need for education, training, and assessments at every visit, especially with the often complex medication delivery devices that are part of treatments. Dr. Paul Scanlon says the majority of people with COPD have mild disease that requires very little treatment other than smoking cessation and possibly a short-acting bronchodilator. He says for the minority of people with more advanced disease, current therapy is very effective improve symptoms and quality of life it increases exercise tolerance and reduces frequency of exacerbations so for current sufferers of copd there are ways to lower your risk and manage symptoms including smoking cessation regardless of how bad your lung function is and in other news polycystic kidney disease is one of the leading causes of kidney failure So far, there has been no cure, says Dr. Fouad Shabib, a Mayo Clinic nephrologist. But for the first time, there is hope, a drug that the Food and Drug Administration recently approved for treating polycystic kidney disease. Now, polycystic kidney disease is caused by a genetic mutation passed down from parents. Patients will start forming kidney cysts, which are fluid-filled sacs in the kidney. The kidney starts to fill with fluids, leading to kidney failure. But there is hope for what has always been a difficult disease. Dr. Shabib, who was on the Mayo Clinic team researching the drug, says it's not a cure, but it can slow the disease's progression. And slowing the disease means patients won't need dialysis or need a transplant until they are much older. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
4: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Coronary artery disease is the most common type of heart disease in the United States. Coronary artery disease develops when the major blood vessels that supply your heart with blood, oxygen, and nutrients become damaged or diseased. Cholesterol-containing deposits like plaques in your arteries are usually to blame. When those plaques build up, the narrowing of your coronary
1: artery decreases blood flow to your heart. And I'm no medical expert, but I know that can't be good. The result is symptoms including chest pain and shortness of breath. A complete blockage can lead to a heart attack. Here to discuss treatment and prevention of coronary artery disease is Mayo Clinic cardiologist and the former chair of cardiovascular medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chet Rehall. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rehal. Chet.
6: Thank you for having me back. It's <laughs> Great always to have a pleasure to be here with you.
1: <laughs> I don't even know how many times you have come in to talk mm-hmm. with us about coronary artery disease. Why, first of all, are so many people interested in this?
6: And The reason is pretty simple. It's very common. In fact, heart disease is still the number one killer in America. Cancer is a very close second. It's sort of neck and neck, I'm afraid, between these two. Heart disease is almost ubiquitous after a certain age. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, so the older we get, the more likely we are to have heart disease. And if we have risk factors on top of that, you know, whether it's diabetes, smoking, God forbid, um, hypertension, high blood pressure, high, high cholesterol in the blood, all of those things increase the risk of us developing blockages in our arteries. We've made tremendous progress in treating and preventing coronary disease over the past 40, 50 years. Since the Surgeon General's report in 1963 that outlined smoking as a risk factor, the the rates of smoking, high blood pressure have gone down, and the overall uh, risk and incidence of heart attacks has gone down. And when the public smoking bans came in, that also made it go further down. And on top of that, we have very good treatments, balloons, stents, bypass surgeries, and new medications. All of those things have really, really helped. However, all of those things are treatments. They don't actually prevent the problem in the first place. So we have a lot of good treatments. However, it's best never to get the disease in the first place. Those risk factors that people hear about, there's also a lot of warning signs that might trigger someone to get further evaluation. What are some of those warning signs that yeah. we should be aware of? Yeah. So the things to watch out for, and that's really your question, typically what people will walk or exert themselves. If they get any unusual symptoms in the chest, that could be a warning sign. The classic symptom, which is sort of the elephant sitting on the chest, you know, the the heaviness, that can occur typically in males. Many women don't experience that. And in women, it can present in, in more unusual ways. It can be sharp pains. It may be at rest sometimes. But any unusual symptoms in the chest area, sometimes even in the neck area, can be a sign. Shortness of breath can, can occur as well without the chest pain. So there's lots of different things. You're talking about emergency department, though,
1: type of warning signs. What are some of the warning signs before that?
6: It, so even before that, if people are fatigued, they're getting short of breath, their exercise tolerance is not the same as before, um, those things could be a sign that you may need to get evaluated for some sort of heart disease. And that evaluation can be simple. It can be on an outpatient basis. Starts with a good history and physical by a good doctor, right? And following maybe a stress test of something of some of some sort um, that can give us a lot of key information as to whether or not there are serious underlying problems. What is actually happening to your heart? Is it getting harder? Is it getting mm-hmm. gunked up? What's happening? Yeah. So we literally have buildup and deposits of stuff within the arteries. The way I explain it to my patients is the arteries are like a pipe. And the role of the arteries is to deliver blood down to the heart muscle, right? So you can get all sorts of plaque building up in your arteries just like you can in your plumbing at home. They can be focal plaques that are short and that can be treated with balloons and stents or it can, they can be more diffuse plaque. For example, like diabetic patients sometimes get where the entire pipe gets narrower and narrower. And if you look inside these plaques, what do we see? We see cholesterol deposits. We see calcium built up. Right, And we see other types of things, and there are like specific cells that can build up in there. Sometimes we see blood clots or healing blood clots also within these plaques. So they're very complex. It's not just cholesterol, but it's many different things. And one of the risk factors that we're finding more recently is inflammation in these arteries. So just like you can get inflammation on your skin or in your lungs or anywhere else, you can actually get inflammation involving the arteries of your heart. And that's a really important risk factor. Well, and you mentioned the
4: buildup. So that's really what people are targeting when you mentioned stents and other interventions. When people have a a loved one who might have gone through this or or, is at risk for this, um, what sort of progress have we made in making sure that those types of procedures are available to to people in a rapid fashion? I remember when I was in training, it was all about door-to-balloon time or how quickly can you get somebody into the cath lab for one of these procedures. What sort of progress have we made for people not just
6: in urban areas but, but across The country? So, this is a great question. So, we and many others around the country have developed not just rapid uh, cath lab access from our own emergency department, but we've truly developed regional systems of care. So, for example, here at Mayo Clinic, we have uh, up around 30 hospitals in our region throughout Minnesota that are involved in our so called STEMI network, which means acute heart attack. And so, what would happen is if a patient shows up at one of our regional partner hospitals, okay. Depending on when they show up in relation to their symptoms, they may get a a drug to open up the the blockage, or they may get sent here right away uh, in a helicopter right to the cath lab for us to open up the acute blockage. So we really are able to blanket most of southern Minnesota and provide rapid access to the cath lab and emergency care. And there's a couple of other very good programs in Minnesota, so we're very fortunate in this state that virtually the entire state is now covered by rapid access care for acute heart attack victims.
1: Since this program, though, is over 200 radio yeah. stations, I would imagine that if if living in Minnesota is a good place to live, there might be other parts of the country that are not good
6: places to live, relatively speaking, when I, I, it comes I, to
1: coronary artery disease.
6: Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know about the coverage from cath labs around the country, but you're right, is that there is tremendous variation from state to state and region to region in the incidence of coronary disease, and a lot of it can be traced back to some of the basic risk factors so if you look at the rates of obesity and diabetes, they kind of exactly mirror the rates of coronary disease and so where do we see the most? If you look at the map it 's up the, the the Mississippi River Valley and then up into the into the southeast. This is where the highest rates of all of these conditions are in the u s so We have a lot more work to do nationally. In Minnesota, again, which is where we're based, we're relatively fortunate in having relatively low rates of these things. They're a lot higher in other parts of the country.
4: Well, and I think you mentioned this idea of lifestyle prevention, and then when you notice some of these warning signs or even when you are diagnosed with a condition that puts you at risk, mm-hmm. really making sure that you have access to, uh, to good medical facilities mm-hmm. so you can, you can keep a close eye on it sounds like a critical part of that care.
1: Yeah. We have about 30 seconds left. What are some other tips for prevention
6: of coronary disease? You know, just, <laughs> it's actually quite simple. You don't, all, you don't need a cardiologist to tell you what to do. Lead a healthy lifestyle. Be active, get up off the sofa, put the remote away, put the phone away. Be active, keep your weight under control. That's the single biggest driver. Excess weight drives high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, and high blood sugar. Keep the weight under under control, be active. Chances are you're going to do much better.
1: We've been talking about coronary artery disease with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Chet Rehall. Thanks again for joining us.
6: My pleasure.
4: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll discuss kids and common infections with a Mayo Clinic infectious disease expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Infections are a normal part of childhood. According to the American Academy of Pediatrics, most children will have six to eight respiratory infections each year. These include colds, ear infections, sinus infections, bronchitis, and pneumonia. Infections that cause diarrhea and/or vomiting are also very common, as any parent can tell you. Mm, some of the best kind of infections.
1: When children are together in close quarters, such as a childcare setting or in school, infections are more easily spread from one child to another. So, how can we help our kids avoid those nasty bugs that are going around? Here to discuss kids, infections, and what to do about them is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Nipuni Rajapaxi. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rajapaxi. It's great to have you here. It's great. Thanks for having me back. Both Dr. Strand and I, kids in daycare. Mine are no longer in daycare. <laughs> Mine are Yours almost are done. In <laughs> I think it's the best thing ever because they have gotten all of those bugs out of their system and my kids have not been sick ever since they were in daycare. Am I imagining that or is that for real?
7: So kids are exposed to a lot of different types of infections in daycare, for sure. And uh, by virtue of that, parents are often exposed to a lot of infections during that phase of life as well. Um, so there are many infections when you get infected with them once, you develop some level of immunity to them. And so it does kind of help to stimulate a child's immune system to be uh, exposed to all those infections.
4: So I'm not imagining it.
7: <laughs> no. <Nope.
4: laughs> it doesn't make it less of frustrating. Though. I mean, I guess one of the things I'm curious about are what are those? what are the most common infections that kids are getting?
7: Sure. So there's uh, things that circulate kind of during different times of year. Um, By far, the most common infection uh, would be the common cold, uh, which we see kind of happen year round. Common cold is caused by a variety of different uh, viruses, actually over 100 different viruses. And that's why it is so common. Um, As I mentioned, you can get some level of immunity to things you've been exposed to in the past. But when there's so many different uh, viruses out there, um, there's a lot of different things that can circulate in different places and over time.
1: What is the difference between a viral and a bacterial infection? Because the only reason it makes a difference, as far as I'm concerned, as the parent, is do they get antibiotics or not?
7: (laughs) Sure. So that's kind of one of the important uh, distinguishing features. So uh, viruses are tiny microscopic particles that we can't see. They can cause a whole variety of different types of infections, Um, some mild, like the common cold, but also more serious uh, things like uh, brain infections. Um, as well. And so there's a large uh, spectrum of diseases that we see caused by viruses. Um, bacteria are also microscopic, so you can't see them with the naked eye. Um, And they too can cause a variety of infections ranging from harmless to uh, quite serious and harmful, uh, sometimes even leading to death. And so um, the main uh, thing when it comes to treatment is whether or not they will respond to uh, antibiotics. Uh, Viruses do not respond to antibiotics, only bacterial infections do. And as we're learning more and more about some of the harmful effects of antibiotics and running into more and more problems with antibiotic resistance, that uh, differentiation becomes more and more important.
4: It, it, do you think it's the case? Because I, I hear this from fellow parents and, and family members that it, it seems more and more we're hearing about the problems of over-prescription of antibiotics. Is that because kids are generally getting more commonly viral infections? Would that be a fair statement, or is that over overstating it?
7: So um, we do see a lot of uh, antibiotic prescriptions being written for things that are viral infections and for which there are no benefits. It's one of the biggest kind of drivers of the overprescribing mm-hmm. of antibiotics. Um, it can be challenging in some situations when you have a patient in front of you to say for sure whether it's a virus or a bacteria. Kids are exposed to both Um frequently during childhood, Um, but we really want to get away from uh, using uh, antibiotics in kids who have a viral syndrome or viral infection just because it's of no benefit to them and can cause harm.
1: Are parents not surprised by that as much as they used to be?
7: Yeah, I think uh, now parents have access to so much information. I think a lot of them are very aware about the issues of resistance and some of the impact of antibiotics on things like, uh, for example, the microbiome. So we know that our body is made up of all sorts of good bacteria, and when you give someone antibiotics... Along with wiping out harmful bacteria, you also wipe out some of the good bacteria. And so um, now I'm hearing a lot more from parents who are saying, oh, does my child really need an antibiotic for this more so than um, in the past coming in and sometimes asking or demanding from a doctor to have an antibiotic for their child. And so I think um, all this new information and knowledge that we're getting, we're starting to kind of see the tides change a bit.
4: Well, and I think that leads to the next question. So if you don't get antibiotics, because you know a lot of these syndromes are potentially viral, what sort of things can you do to help kids get healthy and and how do you help uh, keep them from spreading it to other kids?
7: Sure, that's a great question. Um, Kids can feel very miserable when they have a viral infection. It's not like just because it's a virus, it's just a mild infection and they um, necessarily feel fine. Um, But there are a lot of things that we can advise that can help them uh, feel better. One of the things is using uh, medications like uh, acetaminophen or ibuprofen if they're having fever or feeling uh, uncomfortable.
1: Wait a second, I thought that you're supposed to kind of let the fever be because it's there for a reason. And unless it's really high, you should just kind of let the fever be to burn away whatever it's there for.
7: So that's why I said if they're feeling uncomfortable. That was the key part of that sentence. So you don't need to treat fever if the child is happy playing, running around, looks perfectly fine. There's no reason to give them any specific um, medication for the fever itself. But if they're feeling kind of crummy or they're tired or not feeling well, uh, they're not wanting to eat or drink, um, those are reasons why you might want to give them something so they feel a bit better.
1: Is it okay to leave that fever unchecked, to not treat it with medication? If they are feeling
7: okay, it's okay. Yeah, so the most important thing when we um, hear about or see kids with fever, um, I think some people get quite fixated on the numbers of the fever and how high it is. But for us, really the most important thing is uh, how the child looks. Um, And so if they're um, running around playing, eating and drinking, fine. I'm less concerned about that child, even though they might have a really high number on the thermometer, uh, as opposed to the child who might have a lower-grade fever but is lethargic, sleepy, difficult to wake, not eating and drinking.
1: All right, so I interrupted you. So we've got the fever. What are some other things you can do to help
7: them? Sure. So um, aside from things like uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, you can um, use uh, warm drinks or cool drinks. A lot of kind of common cold or even influenza, things like that are associated with uh, some sore throat um and so in terms of also keeping them hydrated those kinds of things can be helpful popsicles another good thing um the most important thing when kids are sick is making sure that they stay hydrated they may not want to eat much which i think is fine for a few days until they recover but getting as much fluids as you can uh, into them as possible is super important and so sometimes things like popsicles can both soothe the throat and also give extra fluids um the other big thing is kind of doing what you can to avoid transmissions. So obviously in a household setting, especially if you have multiple uh, kids at home, especially young kids, it can be hard, um, but making sure that everyone's uh, washing their hands, practicing good cough etiquette. So by that we mean coughing or sneezing into your elbow, disposing of uh, tissues and things, washing your hands really well. As simple as it sounds is really the number one thing that we recommend.
4: So, it, I mean, the funny thing is it hasn't changed much. I feel like I just read a Bernstein Bear book to my kids <laughs> like a year ago from published in the 70s uh, about, you know, how Papa was doing a terrible job and not coughing into his arm. And, and it feels like we still keep telling people over and over again, but it's still really important. It has. I mean, we still need to wash our hands and make sure that we're working on preventing transmission. And that seems to be the like huge issue that is okay. over and over again and can't be emphasized enough.
7: Yeah, so I would say the kind of two biggest things, Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Wash your hands is huge, um, and then vaccines is the other big thing we can do to prevent some of these uh, common infections in kids.
1: And finally, how long are kids contagious or adults for that matter? How long should we stay home from work? How long should they stay out of school?
7: Yeah, so that's a complicated question. Depends a bit on what the actual infection is. Um, For many common infections, uh, the time that you transmit the most is usually the time that you have fever for. Um, And so that's kind of a general rule is if you're having fever, you're probably shedding virus in your saliva and in your secretions and can uh, transmit. Um, But certain conditions like stomach flus, Uh, can be transmitted for uh, longer even after your symptoms, vomiting, diarrhea, have resolved. And so um, it's an important thing to talk to your doctor about when you see them um, so they can guide you a bit on when it may be safe to go back.
4: Well, thank you so much for being here. We've been talking about kids and infections with Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Napuni Rajapakse. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Rajapakse. Great. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a
1: question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
4: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. From Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Jacob Strand.
1: And I'm Tracy McCray.
4: Thanks for joining us.